so this morning um, we're going to be starting in Acts chapter 25 and uh, we're going to start at verse 23. We're skipping a little bit. Uh, we left off last week in 25:12. We're, we're going to go over. We're going to cover what, what's there, but we're going to start in verse uh, 23 and read all the way to verse 18 of chapter 26. <clears throat> so a little bit longer of reading this morning. But... So Acts 25, starting in uh, verse 23. I'll read these verses for us. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I had found that he had committed nothing deserving of death, and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him, and therefore I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not specify the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I thank myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, and if they were willing to testify, they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of the religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and I am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God day and night, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often from every synagogue and compelling them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to the far... I pursued them... Excuse me. I, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests... At midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things, and other things that I will reveal to you. 
I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Let's pray together. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you again for our uh, time this morning. We thank you for your word. Father, as we read uh, these accounts, uh, or this account uh, from the life and testimony of Paul, uh, Father, we are just uh, thankful that we have it here uh, for our benefit. And we just pray that you will use it today. Uh, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, use it to change us and um, make us more like your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so if you remember last week, we ended with Paul appealing to Caesar and Festus agreed to send him. Now, uh, you remember he he appeals and then Festus said, hey, to Caesar, then you shall go. If that's where you want to go, then that's where you're going to go. Now, between those words from Festus and where we begin today, a few things have happened. Okay, we're just going to review those. Uh, After Festus said, uh, then to Caesar, you shall go, uh, a local Jewish king, we meet him in uh, the reading, uh, Agrippa, Agrippa II, and his consort, Bernice, came uh, to visit Festus and offer their congratulations on his newly, uh, him being appointed uh, to the governor of this region here. He replaced Felix. And while they were there, while they were there visiting, Festus told him that he was about to send a certain Jewish Roman prisoner uh, to Rome for a trial. But he didn't really know what to tell the emperor. He didn't know what to send in the documents Okay, that he was sending in advance. Now a little explanation of that. For, for a governor, uh, of his, a man in his position, for him to send a prisoner to uh, the emperor uh, with no clear charges was really foolish. Okay? It was really dangerous for him to do that. So he's looking for, because remember he's new, he doesn't know a lot of the background, uh, so he's looking for some help. Okay, that's that's what he's doing. He's just I, I don't really understand why the Jews say this man is not fit to live. I have no understanding. We really can't find anything wrong with him. So help me understand. So he's he's asking. He, he's got to send these documents um, along with the prisoner, something writing from him, and he's asking for help. Hey, Agrippa, can you help me? Can you help me put something down here that I can uh, send um, on to the emperor? Uh, Agrippa was some sort of an expert in Jewish matters. Um, and so that's why uh, Festus uh, asked him to help. Maybe you can help explain uh, what was going on here and what, what is the issue? What's really going on here? You, you can help me here. And let's talk a little bit about Agrippa for a moment. Uh, Agrippa II is the grandson of Herod the Great. Uh, the son of Herod the Great is the one who had Peter arrested and James executed. Now, he died in 44 A.D., and at that time, Agrippa was only 17 years old. So, his dad's dead. He's only 17. The, 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 um, the role of governor should pass to him, but Rome, Rome decided he was too young and that he needed to wait. He was too young to, to rule, and so they put someone in place for about six years. And then at the age of uh, 23, uh, Claudius appointed him, uh, Agrippa II, as king over this Jewish region. Okay, so he's now 23 years old when he appointed, was appointed ruler. 
the region at first they gave him was a little smaller actually than his father had. Again, they were, hey, this guy's young. We're going to give him. We're going to decrease his territory a little bit. But later it was added. The longer he reigned, he proved he could was responsible enough, and he had more um, territory added uh, to his uh, his authority. Uh, Nero even gave him more authority um, to Agrippa later on, and Agrippa II lived until almost the end of the first century. Now, Bernice, his consort, okay, let's talk a little bit about her. She was actually his sister. Um, Their sister, okay, this is in Drusilla, if you remember we met the other week, was married to Felix. So there's a family connection here, okay, already with with the the visit here. Now, Bernice, again, this is his consort, you know, it's somebody who... Usually a wife or a husband of a, of some sort of monarchy. Okay, that's what a consort is. I had to look that up. Uh, so uh, her first marriage was to her uncle. Okay, I know this. This is true. I'm not. This is not made up. This is not a soap opera. This is real life. Here, okay. Uh, so she's with her brother. Uh, her first marriage was to her uncle, and when he died, she came to live with her brother, and now and and, and entered into this incestuous relationship. Um, at one point during that marriage, she married another man, uh, but left him and went back to Agrippa. Uh, together uh, with her brother, uh, later on after uh, these the times here with Paul, um, she had asked the Jews not to get involved with a certain rebellion against the Romans, asked them to stay out of it. Please, please don't get involved. And this was in 66 AD, so about 10 years or so after where we are now. Uh, but they didn't listen. And as you know, what happened, uh, the Jews did revolt at those times. And the Romans came in and they did conquer Jerusalem, and they, which culminated in the destruction of the city in 70 AD uh, under the Roman general Titus. Now, Titus, if you know, would later succeed his father as emperor of Rome. And so he was well-known. He's a well-known general, so he comes in. And, and so he caught Bernice's attention. So Bernice actually leaves her brother again uh, and became Titus's mistress for a time. Um, but the Titus decided to not marry her. He decided that wasn't a good idea uh, for whatever reason. It's not, not a good idea. And so um, she went back to her, uh, her brother. Uh, most historians agree that Agrippa II was not as violent as his father and grandfather. But as you can tell from just this brief little survey we've just gone over, um, what do you think about this man's moral character? Okay, uh, yeah, a lot to be desired, a, a lot to uh, left to be desired. I mean, it's just not not a very um, moral um, man here, and his, of course his sister. A lot of a lot of stuff going on there. So this is. This is who is coming in. Okay, this is again the, the, their sister Drusilla. You remember was the connection before, so they're coming in. That's that's the couple. Okay, that now Paul is standing before. Okay, verse uh, twenty-three. This is where we started our reading. It says, uh, "So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city." At Festus's command, Paul was brought in. So we're told they made a grand entrance, right? They, it's something like you would see in a movie or something, right? They, they're coming in, they arrived in the city, it says, Luke tells us, with great pomp. 
I can, you can imagine there were flags flying, there were um, horses prancing around, just a lot of show of, hey, this is, this is the king and his, and his wife or sister. Okay? Um, and so they made this grand entrance. Um, Luke uses a, a Greek word here, Ventaseus, which in English, in, in here in this section, uh, the English word is translated pomp. Okay, so he uses the word fantasias. Uh, it's translated here pomp. Uh, Dr. Sproul mentioned, however, the word is typically translated fantasy. Okay, the word is typically, so the word Luke uses, okay, translated here pomp, is typically translated fantasy. And that's an interesting, interesting um, description, right, uh, by Luke uh, describing this entrance of these two that came in with fantasy. So, um, the uh, Dr. Sproul commented, he said, so all their, and using that word, all their pomp, all this look at us and look at how great we are, that was really the fantasy. Because, he says, the real power was in the Jewish prisoner. Okay, that they're coming to see. That's where the real power was, right? With Paul. Paul was anointed by the Holy Spirit. He was gifted. And that was where the real power was. So you see this tragic irony. Okay, just sad irony of all this this fantasy. Um, well, we know that there was no fantasy in the Apostle Paul. Uh, he spoke the truth. He did not apologize for it. Um, he was convicted and convinced and committed to sharing the truth. And there was absolutely no fantasy in his testimony. So we see here that Paul was brought before Agrippa and Agrippa permitted Paul to speak for himself. And uh, at this point, there's no one there to accuse him of anything. So none of his accusers are there. So Agrippa just says, okay, speak for yourself. There's nobody here, you know, so speak up. What, what do you have to say? And in verses, or excuse me, chapter uh, 26, verses 2 and 3, this is Paul speaking. He says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. Uh, Dr. Sproul commented here, uh, he says, when I read these verses, he said, I can't help but think of Luther, Martin Luther, and what he went through. Uh, between the years of 1517 and 1521. Now what had happened? We were familiar with Luther. We know what was going on. After he had written out his 95 Theses, he had nailed him uh, to uh, the church door at Wittenberg. Well, it took some time, but word get back, gets back to Rome, and immediately Luther is labeled a heretic. Okay, He's, he's labeled uh, a heretic. And because of this label, and, and Luther wasn't shying down from a, a discussion, he wanted to discuss the matters. He wanted to, hey, let's, let's have a discussion. Let's have a debate. Let's talk about these things. Um, and it was allowed him uh, the ability to debate these, have discussion. It was allowed uh, by church law. But year after year, he was denied. He was denied year after year. He was he was labeled. He's you know he's a heretic, but he has given no opportunity to defend what he has written. So you can imagine a little bit maybe of what he's going through for these years, these uh, four years. 
finally at the Diet of Worms, we know that it was called, and Luther was there, and he, in Sproul uh, says, I'm sure he was glad. May, okay, now I will finally have an opportunity to debate this, to discuss this, to defend what I have written. Of course, when he arrived, there was no debate. Okay, there was no, uh, they, didn't, they didn't really want to hear what he had to say. All they wanted was one thing. They wanted him to recant. Okay? They wanted him uh, to recant. No debate. We didn't want to talk about it. So, and Sproul, so that's, he says, that's probably the same sort of thing that happened here with Paul. Okay? It's very, I would say, very similar. Okay? Kind of situation. Um, Paul finally gets an opportunity to present his case before a king who should understand kind of where he is and understand the Jewish people and the Jewish law and custom because uh, obviously the Roman authorities didn't really have any understanding of it. They've said time after time, we find nothing wrong with this man. There's no reason to kill him, right? So he, he's, um, he finally gets this opportunity. Um, Paul expresses his happiness and asks him to listen to him patiently. Now, uh, another point here that, that's made uh, as we get into uh, Paul's defense. Yes, I think Paul's excited. He has an opportunity to defend his position. But I think when you, after you read uh, his, the, the words that he says and the way he says them, he has more in mind here. Okay, Paul is a missionary and an evangelist. Okay, he is called to preach the gospel. Okay, he's already been told the things that are waiting for him, right? In his own, when he recounts what Jesus said to him, what is Jesus' own word? We find later in 17, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. And, and Jesus has, uh, has told Paul what, what awaits him, okay? So do you, I, I personally don't think Paul really expects to be let go here, okay? I, I think Paul is fully expecting nothing's really going to change here. But I will defend my case, but at the same time, what Paul had in his mind, I'm going to share the gospel with this man and maybe he'll be converted. I'm going to preach the gospel here. I'm going to talk about salvation and what it takes to have faith in Christ. And maybe Agrippa and some of the others gathered will be converted. Always a missionary, always the evangelist. Always. Committed. What do we say about him? Committed. Commitment. Just, this is what I am called to do. That's an amazing commitment. Here you're, you know, trying to, maybe, you know, if, if you're thinking really on human level, on the human uh, level and earthly terms, you may be thinking, okay, this is my way out. This is the way to get released. It's really not what would he, was, he was thinking. He was, I'm called to preach. And these people need to hear the gospel. That's an amazing testimony, okay, to think about when you think about what Paul uh, is going through here. So think about that. His, his, his main purpose here is really not to defend himself, but is to maybe possibly convert Agrippa and others. So he starts, and let's, let's, uh, verse 4, he says, My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. What, what's he saying? They know me. Okay, I, I was. I have been known. 
I was not, uh, I didn't just come on the scene 20 years ago, okay? My life, uh, Paul, Paul explains that his life, according to the strictest sect of the Jewish religion, okay, he lived as a Pharisee. What Paul's own words, I was a Pharisee of a Pharisees, right? He, he lived it, okay, his entire life until he met Jesus on the road. Um, the Pharisees, of course, if y'all remember, uh, brief history of Pharisees, you know a little bit about them. Uh, a little bit, let's go back a little farther though. Uh, the Pharisees were the ones who, after the return from the captivity, they were so upset at the decadence of this new generation of Jews. Okay, they were just really upset that, that so many uh, Jewish people had become secularized. Uh, they had left the father of uh, the faith of their fathers. They had turned away. They had uh, forgotten the law of God, which is what uh, you know, the Jews had the law, had the word. They had forgotten that. And the Pharisees were a group of people who wanted to call the Jewish people back to the foundation of their faith. They were, as Dr. Sproul put it, the reformers of their day. Now, even though uh, they, their beginnings, the way they came about, their purpose was to defend, <coughs> excuse me, to defend the truths of the religion. However, they never really truly embraced them. Now, we know what happened with the Pharisees. The Pharisees got off track really quickly, and and and, and things. It, it didn't become about the law anymore. It became so much about works. It became so much about so many other things that's not gospel. So we know, but they this is their start. They were the reformers. So what's Paul saying? I was one of them. Okay, I was zealous for the law. Okay, I um, lived the life of a Pharisee. In verse 6 and 7 it says, And now I stand and I am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God, day and night, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. So what's Paul saying? I, hey, I'm, I was and still am living up to the Scriptures. I am holding up to what's found in the Old Testament. They uh, are accusing me of the opposite when... Really, I'm I'm doing the one I'm I'm the one who is who believes what's written in the in, in the Old Testament about the Messiah, and that's why I'm on trial here. Um, Doctor Sproul shared a little bit of history uh, about the beginnings of Ligonier Ministries in his commentary. He says uh, before in 1971, before R.C. Sproul started to. Uh, or before he agreed, let me say, before he agreed to start Ligonier Ministries, he sought the permission of his local presbytery. And at the time, he says, I was a minister in a liberal mainline denomination. And he said, um, when I went before them to ask for permission to start this ministry, he said they were rather hostile towards me. He, uh, he goes on to say the church had adopted the Confession of Faith of 1967, which I'm not familiar with. But he said, um, and this confession, which uh, while not replacing earlier confession, it attempted to neutralize them by giving those seeking ordination the freedom to pick and choose personal convictions. 
uh, from various creeds. You can see how stuff gets off track in churches, right? It gets off track really quick. Men get involved and they walk up, step away. But anyway, so he told them, he told the Presbytery uh, that he held to the Westminster Confession of Faith and believed those as his standards. And they did not like it as he gave this testimony. And so they asked him to leave the room while we discuss this request. Now that's common sometimes when there's some issues coming before Presbytery and um, you know, it's, uh, it's common to ask whoever's there to leave the room. Um, and they did here with this case, but this was a hostile crowd. They were not welcoming uh, to him. And so they asked him to leave, and he said, this is, I'm going to quote him, he said, and this is Dr. Spore, he says, before I left the room, I left them with this words, these words. I said this, I only hope that if you judge me unfit for your presbytery, that it is not because I am loyal to the confession under which I was ordained, and by the way, under which you were ordained, and that you swore to uphold. Strong words. Wise words. Wise words. Dr. Sproul put them in a very tough spot. Very tough spot. Because if they were to condemn him, then they would also be doing what? Condemning themselves. Wise, wise man. Well, we know that they did give permission, but it was with great reluctance. They, um, obviously I wasn't there, but uh, I can imagine given what he had, the challenge that he had left them with, uh, they really saw no way to deny this. And they reluctantly allowed him to start looking at ministries within their presbytery. Now he shared that. He said, because of that, and this is his word, because of that experience, he said, I can understand a little bit about what Paul's going through. I can understand a little bit. A little bit, okay? Not what Paul's going through. I can understand a little bit about what Paul's going through. Because what Paul's saying here Okay, in his uh, defense before Agrippa, Paul's saying the people want to kill me. Okay, they want to kill me in the name of orthodoxy. When he is, when I'm the one that's orthodox, that's that's kind of what. That's the name they're, they're charging me, and they're saying they're the orthodox one. They want to kill me, but I'm the one who really is orthodox here. Do you see the the position he's in? There, there. It's it's a it's a it's a tough spot. Okay, it's it's a hard uh, spot, but. You can see the similarities a little bit from what Dr. Sproul shared. Paul was under attack because he believed and he taught that the resurrection, as clearly uh, stated and prophesied in the Old Testament, had had its fulfilling because the Messiah had come and that Messiah was Jesus Christ. Again, none of that was against the Old Testament. It's all prophesied. Here, it happened. Now I believe it. Now I'm preaching that. And now you want to kill me. You see the... It's... You know, if you if you look... If we, if me, if you... If we look at this purely in just horizontal relationships, this is extremely frustrating. You would have to just say, why can't you believe? Why can't you see this? Okay? And that's so tempting to do that when we look at it just purely on human level. Okay? We, can, we just forget about... God's the ones that work in the world. And you can just see how frustrating, if, if I were looking at it that way, I would be so frustrated and angry at this point. 
But you don't really see that with Paul. Why? Because he knows what's going on. He doesn't know all the details, okay? But he's but he knows. He knows why he's here. And he's he's not that frustrated like that because he's you know, he's he's walking with the Lord. He knows that's what the Lord's called him to do. And God has revealed some things to him and he knows. Um, and he's not uh, that frustrated. So he's calmly just presenting this case, hoping that he could uh, that someone uh, would be saved by his testimony. Verse 8. He asks this question here. Paul asks this question after he uh, gives a little bit of summary. He says, Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? What's he saying? Why does that sound so strange? Why is that so difficult for you to understand that God raises the dead? Now today, um, we live in a generation that is in a society and an education system and a culture and a political situation that is controlled by naturalism. Okay? You know what naturalism says. And just naturalism just basically says there's no intelligent design. Right? We, we, we are here. You and I are here. We're just products of time plus matter plus chance. Right? You, you know that that's naturalism. Okay? Evolution. All those things. Uh, no, no, no creator. No God. Okay? We also know that today uh, that teaching biblical Christianity is no longer even allowed in the public square. We can't even do that in any sort of public arena, much less a public school. Uh, and that's because our country is completely godless. Okay, we all have to just admit that. Okay, that's, that's where we are today. Now, our country is absolutely committed to this agenda of naturalism. Okay, they're committed to this. It's everywhere. Um, now, the Christians have been saying uh, for centuries that you really can't, and it's kind of play on words, you really can't even understand nature until you understand that there is a Creator. Really, you know, if naturalism, if, if what you see here just evolved and happened here by chance, then there's really no explanation. But you really, as a Christian, we're saying you can't understand this natural world and how it's set up unless you understand and believe there's a Creator who made it all. And Christians have been saying that. Now, in the naturalism worldview, okay, if that's you know that's a lot of people who are this, there is no life after death. There is no resurrection from the dead. When you die, you're gone. Nothing, nothing, nothing happens. Now you want to talk about a depressing worldview, right? I mean, that's why I've. I've said it before. I don't think there's any really true atheists or natural because if there were, they would just commit suicide. Because if they really were, what's the point? What is the point? Because in their worldview, there is no point. Nothing. Nothing matters. There is no meaning to anything. Why stay? Why continue? All you're going to experience is hurt and pain and sorrow. You know what? What is the point to life? And there are many people who are there, and, I, and that, is, that is truly a sad situation. There are many people we see it. It's it's suicide rates are all time high. Because they are dealing with the implications of their worldview. Okay? It sounds so good. Right? When these when these world when these things it tickles our ear. Oh, because really what it's about, it's about authority. Okay, that's what it's about. Okay, that's what naturalism, evolution, it's just a, a way to say God doesn't exist, that way I'm in charge. Okay, that is the 
that is the core of why that is so appealing. I saw people look at it. Oh, really? Oh, that's, oh that sounds good. Now I don't have a God that I'm accountable to. Right? Is that the age-old problem? Yes, that is the age-old problem. It's just served up a little bit differently. Right? It's the same issue. That's why people crave that. But the sad reality of it is when you start walking down that path, it feels good at first, but it goes absolutely nowhere. And then when people start putting two and two together, they realize their worldview has no meaning, no purpose. They are distraught. That is a truly sad situation. They have no answers for anything. How do they explain anything that happens in the world? How do they explain that they're sad and they lose a loved one? Why should you be sad? It's just, it's just matter. Why should you be sad if your loved one is gone? Why should you be sad when bad things happen? When somebody gets in an automobile accident? Why are you sad? It matters nothing. It doesn't mean, there's no meaning in that. You see the problem with that worldview. It is tragic. And there are so many people who were there. Again, suicide rates are off the charts and it's going to get worse because we are raising a generation of people who live in that worldview. Okay? Now, I didn't mean to go down a rabbit hole. Okay? But the, the battle we are in and the battle that Paul was in. Let me get back to Paul. The, ba- the battle that Paul was in was a battle for the battle for the truth. Okay, it's a battle for the truth. It's the question of life itself. Remember Paul's words to the Corinthians over in 1 Corinthians. He says, if Christ has not risen, then your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. If in this life, only the ones we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied. That's what Paul said, right? Now we all know, we know, that human beings, people, did not evolve from some sort of primordial slime over billions of years. We know that did not happen. There is an eternal, almighty, sovereign, holy, righteous, omnipotent God who created everything out of nothing. With the very power of His Word, He brought everything that is into existence. And He didn't create it in any sort of random order. He created it with order and design and purpose. Everything that He created has a purpose. He didn't do anything just because He wanted to. It was with a purpose. It was with design. And that is the Christian's view of life and death and the resurrection. Okay, there's purpose. There's design into this life and in in our death and what happens when we die. And that should not be seen as incredible. Okay? That should not be seen as incredible. Calvin had a wonderful comment here. He says, talking about Paul, he said, but on the other side, Paul commandeth us to consider what God is able to do. That being lifted up above the world, we may learn to conceive the faith of the resurrection. Not according to the weak capacity of our own mind, but according to His omnipotency. Now just think about that for a minute. He, Calvin, he, he's, kind of ta- he's going to take you a place. He's going to say, think about for a minute what God can do. Okay? Think about what He can do. He says, being lifted up above, imagine you could just fly up into the atmosphere and look at the world. Right? Okay, God's bigger than that. Right? God created all of that. 
And he's, he's saying, we, we don't need to think on the weak capacity of our mind. We don't need to put limits on God. That's basically what he's saying. Don't limit Him. God is omnipotent. God is all-powerful. And that is truly an amazing thing to contemplate, right? Paul goes on to recount how he persecuted believers. And now here, for the third time, we hear about his conversion. Okay, on the road to Damascus. Now in this count that Paul uh, gives us this time, we learn a couple of new things that we haven't seen in the other two accounts, okay? Uh, Verse 14 says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, before you read over that too quick, remember we've studied the significance of a name being repeated. Okay, we've studied that many times. Um, You remember this happens. This happens a lot in, in the Scriptures. You remember early in the Old Testament... Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the lad. Samuel, Samuel, God calling Samuel. Remember, he's to speak for your servant is listening. You remember this in the in the New Testament, Martha, Martha. That's probably my favorite one, Martha, Martha. You worried about so many things, but your sister's chosen the right thing. And when when you hear this, when you hear this name repeated, okay, this is these are tender and intimate moments. Okay, these are precious moments. That's why I love the Martha Martha. That's my favorite one. You know, all the busyness that Mary was, you know, everybody was or excuse me, that Mary was was sitting there at Jesus' feet and Martha's just running around like crazy and doing all this kind of stuff. And she's aggravated. Jesus, won't you tell her to help me? Right? And he says, Martha, Martha. I can just, it just, Martha. He loves her. And he was being intimate. I mean, he was an intimate moment. It was a a precious moment. He was, listen, I'm here. You know, it's okay. Just just calm down. Um, What about Simon, Simon? Jesus' words again, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you. But those wonderful words, but I have prayed for you. Mm. (laughs) What an amazing moment, right? What an amazing moment. Satan has asked for you. Imagine, because guess what? I I bet you there's something in the room that Satan's asked for you too. You know that? I'd be willing to bet. The Satan has asked for some of you here in this room today. And you can hear Jesus' words. I have prayed for you. Karen, Karen, I prayed for you. Ted, Ted, I have prayed for you. He can't have you. What an amazing moment. An amazing, an amazing moment. And then lastly, Jesus' words. Well, he repeated the name again twice, and you'll know this one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here we learned uh, that Jesus stopped Paul on the road to Damascus and he, 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 he spoke to him, he addressed him in the same way. Okay? Again, a tender and intimate moment from Jesus Himself. And then He says this curious thing in verse 14. He says, It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, 
You know, if you grew up on a farm, you know, a long time ago, maybe you understand this, what this means. Uh, but if you remember, um, and then, of course, in this time, uh, everything's moved around by ox and cart and stuff, you know. Well, ox are, and donkeys are known for being stubborn, right? And uh, so when the, the, the guy who's driving the ox cart, what they had done, because they would whip the ox, tell them to go, what's the ox going to do? He wants to kick, right? That's what they do. They want to kick. That's a natural thing that they do. You see cows do it. You see ox do it. You see horses do it. You see everybody do it. But what they would do on the front of the ox cart is they put spikes on the front of the ox cart. And so when the ox would kick, he'd hit his foot on these spikes. So that was painful. And so he basically you tell him, don't do that. Right? So you hit spikes. So what it, the, 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 the fact why it's there is because the stubborn ox is in a position where he can't win. Okay, he's got to obey. He's got to do what the ox driver tells him because... If, you, if I'm whipping you and you're not going and you're kicking, you're hurting yourself. So just do what I tell you to do, right? Now, Jesus was saying the same about Saul. Saul, you can't win against me. It, just as foolish as that is, an ox kicking against the goads, it's a no-win situation for the ox. He says, guess what? It's the same, against you, same with you. you. You can't win against me is what Saul, oh, excuse me, what Jesus was saying. Paul continues to talk. Uh, well, it says, you know, basically what we're saying is we can try to kick and we can try to fight against God, but guess what? We can't win. It's just like kicking against the goat. Just remember that. Next time you think about fighting and arguing with God, think about a stubborn ox kicking against the goats and how foolish that is. You can't win. It's do what you know you're supposed to do. Paul continues about his conversion, and we'll get through here. Verses 16 through 18, he says, But rise and stand on your feet. For I have appeared, and this is, again, this is um, Jesus' words to uh, Saul on the road to Damascus. But rise and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and other things which I will reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people, as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you, to open their eyes, in order to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. R.C. here is asking a question. Um, why would anyone want to stay in darkness? Why would anyone, any reasonable human being, want to stay in darkness? Well, John gives us the answer. In chapter 3 of his gospel. He says, John tells us over in verse 19, Men love darkness rather than light. Because why? Because their deeds are evil. Because their deeds are evil. The reality is for you and me before we're saved, the darkness is our natural habitat. Okay? That is our natural habitat. The darkness. And that's where we practice our evil deeds. And we assume nobody can see them. Well, the light exposes that. The light exposes that. The light of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ exposes that. And it calls people into account for their sins. And by sharing this, what Paul's doing, Paul's asking King Agrippa a question. He's, remember, remember Paul, we said it. Why is he here? Okay, he's here to give a defense, but guess what? He's also here to try to evangelize the king. 
His message is given with design. So Paul's asking King Agrippa, what do you do with your sin? That's pretty bold. That's what he's, that's what he's saying. He's talking about this and basically he's just asking the king, what do you do with your sin? Don't you want to receive forgiveness and be made holy in the sight of God? Are you listening, King? Are you hearing what I'm saying? Right? Well, the reality is, the sad reality is, the people standing here that day chose the darkness. They chose to stay in darkness. They did not want their eyes opened to the truth. They chose the power of Satan over the power of God. And so they lived and died in their own fantasy land. Their own fantasy land. We'll, uh, we'll end there and we'll pick up uh, next week where we left off, Lord willing. Let me pray for us right quick. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank You for our time this morning. We pray that You will just bless our time together and prepare our hearts for our morning worship service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.